Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Where did Jesus come from? When we talk about the virgin birth, we also need to consider the virgin conception. Why is the conception of Jesus important? Well, that's the question that Dr. Neufeld is going to answer today on Back to the Bible Canada. If you have your Bible, start by opening it to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and let's join Dr. Neufeld as we learn more about the birth of Jesus. The Christmas account in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 reads as follows. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, Christmas is an interesting time of the year because if you think about it, there really isn't a lot of New Testament material dealing with the birth of Christ. Of course, there are two chapters in Matthew, two in Luke, and one more theological chapter in the book of John, five chapters in the New Testament. And the more you think about it, think about it this way. Your pastor is going to have to preach about it Sunday after Sunday, year after year, for many years, and continue to find new material in those five short chapters. Now, what's fascinating for me is that every time I look at it, however, I get some kind of an aha experience, and here's my aha experience this year. Although Luke spends a great deal of time describing the event of the birth of Jesus— Matthew doesn't really tell us anything about the birth of Jesus at all. He skips the matter entirely. Rather, he speaks about the conception of Jesus. Now, a number of years ago, when my wife Kathy and I lived in in California, we became friends with a couple that were kind of a hangover from the hippie generation in the 60s and the 70s. For instance, when she got a headache, she sent her husband to a nearby field to pick just the right kind of flowers in the field, and then they made it into a tea, and they drank it, and they said that it worked. You know, I just take Tylenol. It's easier. But this couple thought I was introducing chemicals into my body, and I thought they were drinking flowers, which, at least in my way of thinking, is a lot worse than ingesting chemicals into your body. I mean, drinking flowers? That's silly. But they were whole-earth people, and uh, they were living off of nature, living off the land, all that stuff. Well, when they got pregnant, about the same time as we did, unlike us, they passed around a picture of the hotel where they went on a second honeymoon and where their baby was conceived. And I remember thinking, whoa, way too much information. You see, in polite stories, we will tell the story of a birth, but never the story of a conception. We've been to baby showers, and I've been there with my wife, where all the mothers gather in a room and they talk about, well, it's the most amazing conversations. They'll ask questions like, you know, when did your water break, and how long were the contractions, and did you need an epidural? And the husbands who are in the same room look on in bewilderment, utterly ashamed of themselves, because they know they're responsible for this train wreck. And finally, one of them speaks and in his profound wisdom says, you know, I think there's a hockey game in the next room right now. And the rest of the men, all out of gratefulness, follow the lead guy out of the kitchen and watch the game. And then all is well. But no one, hear me now, not the men, not the woman, speak about the conception. That's not done. It's not proper. And that's interesting because in theological circles, we even talk about the virgin birth. Now, even though Jesus was born of a virgin, that's not the amazing story, is it? 
It's the story of the virgin conception. Now, why is that important? Well, look again at how Matthew writes the beginning of this account. He says, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. And you might say, ha, it's about the birth. But if you listened to me earlier this week, you'll remember that I said that the word translated as birth is really the Greek word meaning Genesis or origin. So when Matthew tells the amazing story of Jesus, of his coming into the world, he begins by answering the question, where did he come from? Well, on the one hand, he comes from the line of David, and he's destined to be one of the great kings who rules the earth. But then he says, that doesn't yet answer the question of origin, where he comes from. So let me explain. If I tell you my origins, I'd have to tell you about my mom and my dad. All human origins begin that way. But here Matthew has something profound to say. So let's retell the story. Before we get into the meaning of the story, let's simply remember it. First, we notice that Mary and Joseph are betrothed. In Jewish culture, betrothal which was much more formal than contemporary engagement because in our day, when a couple gets engaged, the guy gets on one knee, he opens a little box with a diamond and he says, will you marry me? And if she says yes, they're engaged right on the spot. Not so in the time of Mary and Joseph. It was a custom for the parents of the man to choose a wife for him. That arrangement was often made by both parents and not the couple. The common age for girls was somewhere around 15 years of age, and for a man would be around 18. The betrothal itself was formal, done in the presence of witnesses, and it was a legally binding contract. It was common to refer to the parties as husband and wife at this stage, although the couple continued to live in their parents' homes. Sexual relations between the betrothed parties was not tolerated, and yet if it occurred at all, it was called adultery. Any sexual sin at this time, according to Leviticus 22 verse 10 and Deuteronomy 22 verses 23 to 24, was considered worthy of stoning. But by the time of this account, that was almost never practiced, but sexual faithfulness or sexual abstinence was almost always practiced. The couple would remain betrothed for a year, and then there would be a formal wedding ceremony. And in order to break a betrothal, which was a legal ceremony, a formal divorce would have to be initiated. And unlike our day, when divorces are relatively easy, grounds would have to be shown why this drastic action was taken. So that's the drama behind the account. Mary is starting to show, and it's clear that she's pregnant. You have to read Luke's account to get the whole picture. An angel was visiting Mary, who identifies himself as Gabriel. And by the way, Gabriel is the one who's mentioned way back in the Old Testament book of Daniel, where his appearance was so formidable that when Daniel saw him, he was terrified and fell to his face. Mary, on the other hand, is simply troubled. Gabriel tells her that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, and she will, in a miraculous fashion, conceive a child without a man. But Matthew mentions none of that, for he's telling the story from the perspective of Joseph. And in Matthew's account, Joseph only learns of Mary's pregnancy months after her encounter with Gabriel. What he sees is that Mary is showing she's pregnant, and one can imagine the response of Joseph. Shock, anger, a sense of betrayal, and the crushing of his dreams for the marriage. And at this point in the story, we're told of Joseph's character. According to verse 19 of Matthew 1, he's called a just man. Since the book of Matthew is a Jewish book, and the term for just or righteous means that Joseph is a devout man who obeys the law of Moses. 
His decision-making process would not be based upon his own desires. They are guided by the Torah, the law of Moses. He keeps the law. He's not a rebel. He's submissive to God's way. So when the law prescribes a course of action, Joseph bows his head. He's obedient to God. And that's what it means when Matthew says he's a righteous man. And because of this, the marriage is off. Joseph will seek a divorce. And since Mary is guilty of adultery, he will not sin by marrying her, but he will not hold her up to public rebuke. The Mosaic Law in Numbers chapter 5 allowed for a private divorce before two witnesses, which is the legitimate option that God had given him, and this is what he chose. His reason? He would not put Mary publicly to shame. You know, Joseph, for me, always belies the notion that if you take the Bible literally, some people think you become harsh and unforgiving. I know that some Christians today have the reputation of being harsh and condemning, especially when it comes to sexual sin. You know, Christians believe, according to Scripture, that all sexual activity outside of marriage, even if it's between an engaged couple, is sin. That's the biblical perspective. But Joseph's example is noteworthy. He will not bend his commitment to the Word. But that never leads him to becoming a harsh man. He will look for ways to express mercy towards Mary. And this is the great example for all believers that seek to hold a standard of sexual fidelity high, and yet to do so as men and women who are governed by love. Joseph is still, as a disappointed fiancé, determined to make one final act in which he will protect Mary's dignity. And I'll tell you what that's called. It's called grace, or it's called mercy. It's the attitude that reflects the loving kindness of God. Joseph himself knew that he was an object of God's loving kindness, and that's how he would treat Mary. Joseph is that which our world so desperately needs. He will not break his commitment to the word under any conditions, but when he keeps the word, he maintains his dignity as a kind man. And it was just such a man that God chose to be the father of Jesus. The book of Matthew doesn't tell of the conception of Jesus from the perspective of Mary, but instead of Joseph. The conception of Jesus is miraculous because Mary was a virgin, and the angel Gabriel confirms this with Joseph. In a little while, we'll find out why this immaculate conception was so important. Thanks for listening today. Do you want to make a real difference in the lives of believers and non-believers this Christmas? Well, there are many causes and charities you might be inclined to give to this season, but why not include Back to the Bible Canada as one of them? We want to invite you to consider a financial gift, whether it's $50, $100, or $1,000. Your gift is critical in helping us continue to teach God's Word to people of all ages and backgrounds right across our nation. Your gift will also help us meet our year-end goal of $390,000 by December 31st. It's only together that we can move forward and do even more in 2016. So consider a gift that will make a difference and know that you're playing a part in helping to change lives as the truth of God is proclaimed. To give, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Newfeld. 
Verse 20 says, as he considered these things. I'm sure Joseph was trying to get a handle on how to divorce Mary in the village of Nazareth. Now, if you go to Nazareth today, you'll find it to be the largest city in North Israel. It's often being called the Arab capital of Israel, but 2,000 years ago, it was quite different. It was back in 1931 that ancient Nazareth was excavated for the very first time, and it was then described as just an insignificant little hamlet about 25 kilometers inland from the Sea of Galilee. Today, we're led to believe that it may have been larger than was initially thought back in 1931, but whatever its size, it certainly did not have a thousand people. So let's assume that the amount of people the age of Mary and Joseph in this village was no more than maybe 50, at most 70 people. You know, that's the field of eligibles. No one gets into their car and drives to Tiberias or Canaan to to check out the action over there. You don't get onto datenet.com or whatever. You get married in your village. So just as their betrothal would not have been secretive, so their divorce would not have been either. So Joseph has a lot of things to ponder. And as he does, an angel, and it's probably Gabriel, the very same angel that appeared to Mary, comes to Joseph and tells him that Mary has indeed not been sexually unfaithful. This has been a miraculous action of God. This is a conception of the Holy Spirit. There is no adultery. She's never known a man. The story of the virgin conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary is central to the Christian account. But let's consider how controversial that account actually is, especially in our day. First of all, there are many people who simply disbelieve it. A number of pastors and theologians have gone public saying that it is simply not credible to believe in the virgin birth. For instance, the late liberal preacher Harry Emerson Fodzik said that enlightened Christians simply cannot be obligated to believe it, but they should still be called Christian. And since that time, that has been followed by a host of theologians and pastors, all calling the belief a myth. One writer recently said, and I quote, no credible person would believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. And another one added, belief in the virgin birth is endearing, but as a doctrine, it's not important. So there have been two criticisms of this doctrine. The first is, if you believe it, you must belong to the same crowd that believes that the world is flat. You're gullible. And the second criticism is this, it doesn't matter anyway, why make a big deal out of something that changes nothing either way? But is that really the case? Let's answer the question of the importance of the doctrine first. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology shows us three very important aspects connected to the virgin birth. First, the virgin birth, says Grudem, shows us that salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, salvation in the form of Jesus can only come by a supernatural work of God, never through human effort. Human causes cannot explain the event of Jesus in the world. Second, the virgin birth shows us how it is that Jesus can be both fully human and fully God at the same time. That's why the unique circumstances and conception of Jesus points out that Jesus' origins are eternal, even while he was born of a woman. And third, the virgin birth shows us how Jesus can be truly human without having inherited Adam's sin. Since original sin and inherited sin come through Adam, it is significant that Jesus is fully human and yet has no part in Adam's sin. Take away the virgin birth and you take away the foundation of essential Christianity. An unimportant doctrine? I think not. Without it, the entire life of Jesus makes no sense at all. But did it really happen? 
Well, I suppose the entire matter hangs on one important consideration, and it's this. Are miracles possible? See, if you believe in what has been called a closed universe, then it's true that miracles not only don't happen, but that they can't happen. Look at it this way. We know that every effect in this world has a cause. We also know that causes and effects happen in a way that is to the most part observable and repeatable. So if we see an effect, for instance, an apple following it from a tree, we can theorize the cause of that effect. It has something to do with the nature of gravity, the strength of the attachment of the apple to the tree, but we're not looking for a miracle. The explanation of an event is within nature. Furthermore, cause and effect can be reproduced, examined, and explained. Now, proponents of a closed universe argue that every effect that happens, to this they argue there can be no exceptions, happen within the universe itself. That's what they mean when they argue that the universe is closed. No hand from the outside ever enters into the natural course of events, so no miracles are possible. Of course, we might argue, how do we know that? Of course, the answer is we can't know that because we can't observe all causes and their effects. All we can do is speculate that this might be true, that we believe it to be true, of every single event that has ever occurred, but we have no evidence that that's the case. Indeed, the belief in a closed universe, that belief is entirely taken not on the basis of evidence, but on the basis of faith, on the basis of an ideology that has not been proved. And what if it's wrong? What if faith in a closed universe is unwarranted? What if there really is a God who not only enters into nature or the universe itself, but what if God himself is the final explanation or the cause or the origin of the existence of nature itself? And if that's so, then miracles are possible. So to put it plainly, if there is a God and if he is deeply involved in this world, then miracles can and do happen. And a virgin conception presents us with no intellectual difficulty at all. But did the event happen? Well, let's listen again what Matthew said. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you'll name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. You know, the first thing we notice is that the child is to be named Jesus, meaning Yahweh, the God of Israel, saves. The child will save people from their sins. This child starts with a miracle, with a virgin conception, and he ends with a miracle, that is, the resurrection from the dead, and he does more miracles in between. And he creates a new people that have been redeemed from the curse of sin. And then Matthew mentions that this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Matthew is saying that the Old Testament foresaw that event. Now, there are those who have taken exception at this point. One translation, that is the Revised Standard Version of Isaiah 7:14, says, Behold, a young maiden will conceive. But I'm going to say that's an impossible translation. See, I'm tempted here to show why the Hebrew word Alma, which is translated as virgin, should be translated that way. But I'll leave that matter to Hebrew scholars. For myself, I'm simply noticing that the prophecy in Isaiah came at a time when it looked like the Jewish people would be utterly destroyed and their king would also be put to death and the hope of the Messiah would perish. 
In response, Isaiah the prophet, some 750 years before the virgin birth, says, God will give the world a sign that he cares and that he will bring grace to the human race. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Now, young women get pregnant all the time, but virgins never do. That's the sign and that's the heart of the matter. 2,000 years ago in Nazareth, a 15-year-old woman named Mary, who had never dreamed of being sexually unfaithful, betrothed to a righteous man named Joseph, she conceived. And in that moment, Isaiah's ancient sign is given. David's kingdom will never fail. God will save his people from their sins. So what's the significance of the virgin conception of Jesus? Well, it's about incarnation. It's about God entering into humanity and forever ending the idea that God is far away. It's about salvation. John, as you were speaking, my mind kept going back to Joseph and his ability to find a balance between justice and mercy. You know, with all the adultery being so rampant in our culture, in and outside of the church, how do we apply the same justice and mercy within our own congregations? Yeah, I think the first question that we need to ask is that uh, the individuals who have transgressed, that we're trying to correct at times, the first question is, do we love them? Uh, I don't think that um, we can ever speak into anyone's life in such a way that brings grace to them, that brings them to the place of genuine repentance or, or, or whatever we're wanting of them until we have demonstrated our genuine care for them. And, and I think that takes work. So um, I think that love is maybe the first question that we need to ask, always the first question. And of course, we, we can never be to the place where our love clouds us from wanting the, the righteousness of God. So uh, Joseph, for me, is that kind of a man and a wonderful example. And, uh, you know, we just need to continue to ask God to help us to be just like that. The story of the virgin conception is controversial for some. In the end, the absolute significance of Jesus being born of a virgin is essential as God entered into humanity. Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld will be focusing on Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, searching for the king of the world. Make sure to join us, or if you can't and you don't want to miss the message, you can listen online, sign up for our weekday audio mail, or download the Back to the Bible app from your Apple or Google Play Store. Join us tomorrow for Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Sail away with us next year. For the first time, Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again are planning a unique cruise to Alaska in July of 2016. The Alaska Adventure Cruise departs from Vancouver and will sail through ports including Icy Strait Point, Juneau and Ketchikan. Of course, everyone will get to soak in all the natural wonders of which Alaska is so famous for. Glaciers, snow-capped mountains and wildlife. But there is so much more to a Back to the Bible Canada vacation. This trip is designed to encourage and inspire you to draw closer to Jesus as we study the Word with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. Enjoy inspirational evenings with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and enjoy the music of award-winning artist Amanda Stott. Great teaching, fellowship, good times and worship await you on this cruise. A wonderful opportunity for friends and family to enjoy a one-of-a-kind vacation. We'll all look forward to meeting and connecting with you there. So be sure to register early before space runs out and secure your place. Just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. 
That's 1-800-663-2425.